We play and call it work. Mini Wargamer Dave here from MiniWargaming.com. Welcome, Wargamers, to the Shrine of Chaos. This week, we have a very special guest. It is none other than Gav Thorpe. You may have seen him over the uh, past uh, decades. Uh, he has been in the industry for a long time. We're going to bring him in right now. How's it going, Gav? It's good. Hot, but we're good here. Yeah, thanks. Hot on your side of the pond? Very hot, yeah. We're having a very nice early summer at the moment. So uh, all the windows open, trying to cool down. And you're located uh, uh, in the UK. Uh, whereabouts in the UK? Yeah, so I, I live just outside Nottingham, where Games Workshop's based. So, so you're sort pretty of like close. In the mid- right in the middle. Yeah, I'm on a 20-minute drive from Warhammer World, so that's cool. That's uh, Yeah, that's very <laughs> very helpful, I, I would imagine, uh, given the uh, yeah. the work that you do. Now, it's just, uh, just diving right in, uh, how... How long have you worked with Games Workshop? So I started working at Games Workshop in 1993, so 27 years ago, this November. So I started long first of November 93. Wow. So yeah, long time. Um, and what was your first? Uh, what was your first publication with GW? Do you remember that? Well, I was say that that was just that was just after Second Edition 40K had been launched. So I think that came out in like the September, and I joined in the November. Okay. So the first thing I worked on. The, the very first thing I did when I sat down at my desk the first day when uh, was I was making up mock-up cards for the Dark Millennium supplement. So the War Gear cards and Psychic cards. So I had little printouts of the rules from Andy Chambers and he gave me just some playing cards and said, stick those, cut those out, stick those there and stick them on there and we'll use them in the playtesting. Okay. So that was my very first job. Um, my first publication was uh, myself and the two uh, assistant games developers that all started around about the same time. We were tasked with relaunching the Citadel Journal. Right. Um, so, actually, I've got one around here somewhere, um, which was a, kind of an attempt to do almost an in-house fanzine. So it was kind of extra rules and stuff for usually, and, and kind of uh, conversions and stuff, mostly for the secondary games, actually, for Man of War and Epic and stuff like that. But we did a few 40K things. Okay. Um, and that, was to, we, that gave us a bit of a background in... Like the the desktop publishing, the writing, how to put stuff together, uh, photography. Um, th- at the time, there was a very arcane process. For, we didn't have scanners and stuff, so you had to photograph the art right. uh, to the right size and then cut it out. And we were still doing sort of like manual paste up, so physically cutting out stuff and sticking it on the page and then sending it off to a reprographics house who would turn it into the files for printers and stuff. Oh wow! So that kind cool. of yeah, it wasn't too long. I mean, that was for about a year. And then joined White Dwarf. And as we joined White Dwarf, we moved over to actually to some proper digital desktop publishing. And right. there was still quite a lot of the manual stuff going on there. And, and um, you know, there wasn't any digital printing and or digital photography or any of that kind of stuff. So it was a real hands-on experience, really. And I was just chatting to somebody the other day, actually. It was a really good, uh, a good way of not just learning how to write games and sort of background stuff, but actually the whole process of putting together books and magazines on the production side as well and, and presentation which i think's something that a lot of people don't necessarily get to to learn to, you know um in a workplace environment across such a widespread of skills so yeah it was a good it was a good scheme <laughs> now was that something that you fell into when you were working for gw or did you did you have uh, publication experience beforehand no i mean i was 19 i'd just finished school okay so just uh, fresh out of school Pretty much, yeah. It was um, 
So I was originally, when I was a teenager, particularly, I, and my studying, I wanted to be an illustrator. Okay. Uh, so I was going to, I, I like drawing pictures of like, you know, weird fantasy and sci-fi stuff anyway. I was into gaming, games workshop, role playing. Um, and so, but actually, the I think the truth of it, the short version being that I came around, I finished school, uh, due to go to college, but essentially I was going to, I was going to do illustration, but actually I wasn't good enough. Um, it was going to take me longer to do it. It was about another, there was a, uh, it was going to be about another five years of education um, to to kind of to there's like a, a a bridging course to get to the college course and then that was a year and another three year for a degree in illustration so I was like yeah I don't know I'll have a think because I didn't rather than moving seamlessly from school to college it gave me a chance to think is this what I want to do right um, and I just you know I was just sort of bumming around doing various kind of part time jobs working retail and um, just in a uh, well, what you guys would call a liquor store, yeah, um, and stuff like that. What do you guys? And, um, what do you guys call it? Well, we call it an off license. Okay, so it's it's, it's a place that the premises have got permission to sell alcohol that you take off the premises. So it's oh, an off license. Nice. Um, so you know what? It's uh, actually looking yeah. back on it, it's a good thing uh, <laughs> that they deemed you not good enough as an artist because we wouldn't have Gab Thorpe today. Well, the, well the, the, the crazy thing as well is around about that time as well, I'd actually replied twice to Games Workshop before for jobs in the retail chain okay. in the stores. Right. Um, and the first time had been great. I, I got in, invited up to the factory uh, to, for an interview. Um, and uh, I can't remember. I, I really wish I could remember who did the interview because I would have been able to tell them years later that they didn't give me a job. But I can't <laughs> remember who it was. Um I can't remember, and I, I, we can't work out who was running retail recruitment at the time, but um, uh, and I kind of turned up and I had like my figures. But I, the thing was, the 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 place I worked, the off license, wasn't really that busy most of the time. So I spent a lot of it uh, just kind of like writing down ideas and scribbling, sketching, and doing stuff on backs of like beer cartons and all kinds of stuff. Um, and then and I kind of amassed all of this kind of material i suppose which i took with my interview and they were looking for people that wanted to be retail managers and area managers and kind of and i'm there sort of saying hey i've got i've invented all this stuff and it'd be great if i could get to the studio one day right. so they're like right bye no we don't want you the cool thing was though because it was at the factory so at the end they gave me sort of a, a, a cardboard box a mail order box about so big about that deep and just said oh, um, go around the racks so where all the miniatures were so just fill that up and you can take that home with you for free i was like okay <laughs> so i got about two kilos of lead <laughs> and for for free back then and uh and bass and stuff um, i remember because me and my friend that i mostly played with we played lots of epic lots of space marine yeah um and i got so i got a load of orc stuff for mine but i was very generous i got some stuff for him as well and i remember kind of filling out the bottom of this box with bane blade chassis and then like putting all the trying to get as much in as possible with the little las cannon sponsors and different variant turrets and stuff so um and then the other thing is i got the it wasn't long the metal tyranid warriors hadn't been out for very long yeah um and i got a bunch of those but when i got home i realized there were there'd been two bins of the same part so i only had left arms and left legs but i had twice as many as i needed <laughs> i didn't have any right arms or right legs <laughs> so, it was like oh, oh never mind but um yeah so i was quite fortunate really to avoid a, a life in retail really yeah um and then uh it was just uh, there was an advert in white dwarf for the assistant games developer position and i looked at the advert um and i didn't apply then because i didn't it didn't really apply they said they were looking for somebody who was preferably a graduate 21 or older you know that sort of thing right. um right. 
So I was like, well, that's not me. And I'm, you know, my English, I don't, I had to reset my basic English exams <laughs> when I was 16. Okay. Um, but, uh, but I had always been writing stuff. I'd been doing scenarios and role playing and adventures and sort of like, you know, all the stuff that a lot of us probably did when we were teenagers and like inventing characters and, and stuff in your head or coming up with scenarios and things for, for, and campaigns that you never actually get to play and stuff. Were you always so, a writer? Were you always kind of gravitate to the writing? I think so. Yeah. I, now I look back on it. I, it was definitely, uh, it's kind of weird because I always viewed the games as a way into the stories, I suppose. I've always been that kind of narrative background first kind of games. And well, the, yeah, the games are a vehicle for telling the stories as opposed to a really hard and fast, you know, tactical thing. I try and play well, but I'm not, you know, I'm never going to win any tournaments. Right. And I think, uh, and coming from that, you know, coming from a, a period of, you know, I, my first 40k was Rogue Trader. Right. Um, I had an older cousin who introduced me to a lot of this stuff and role playing. He was three, he's three years older than me, I think. Um, and so um, he was kind of hitting that stuff just a little bit before. So he had second edition Warhammer, and then we played some Space Hulk, and he had, uh, you know, um, sort of like the really old kind of pre Space Citadel miniatures and stuff like that, which used to paint with enamel paints and things. Um, and so he was kind of introduced me to it, and then I kind of, you know, I loved it. So I was really into the, the gaming side of stuff, but as a means, I suppose, to to just explore the the world and very much a butterfly from going from army to army and never really finishing anything and having all the game systems. I had a bit of Warhammer and 40K and Man of War. And like I say, Epic was the thing we played the most and uh, and started with Adeptus Titanicus on that. But um, but I suppose, yeah, I'd always kind of gone beyond the box. It's like when you started with like Rogue Trader and things like that, you had to. It wasn't necessarily the, the structure and stuff that there is now and everything kind of all the background. You had to kind of keep reading and inventing stuff to right. kind of piece it all together. So Forging your own narrative, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but uh, so why? Um, so I'd been writing all this stuff and one of the things I'd been writing was some extra Blood Bowl rules for Zotes and bull centaurs, as they were then. Um, or, sorry, boar centaurs, they were called then, not bull centaurs. Um, and I and I typed, I sort of, I'd kind of written them up and I'd typed them up nicely. Well, and sort of, I went in the UK in 93 um, and uh, saw Jervis Johnson, who was the writer of designer of Blood Bowl. And I showed him the rules and just said, oh, I've, I've written some rules. What do you think? Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, well, don't give them to me now because I'll lose them. I, whatever says so just you know post them to me at the studio you know just to me and i'll take a look at them right um so i uh i went oh okay that's cool so what i did is i went home i took all the scribbled stuff that i got and and sort of rules for orc boss wagons i'd invented and all kinds of other stuff and uh one of the one of the things i'd done is i created a new race 40k called the seychelles which might get onto later, but essentially the basic tenets of that race eventually became the town. Um, uh, the really? idea of the five, really? the, the five casts and stuff. They were that, yeah. But, so, um, wait, hold on one second. Hold on. If, <laughs> if I'm to understand this correctly, you invented the Tau? Uh, well, the the central idea, the the caste system, and the, the the elemental casts and the fifth cast and stuff that that concept. So the the the, the look and everything else that came afterwards. But uh, yeah, they were kind of. It was. That's another story. <laughs> you get to that, but but yeah, I, I basically wrote that when I, that came out when I was about sixteen or seventeen, and 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 overly, 
over, and there was, there was a bunch of sketches of these. These were actually kind of more like lizard men in space originally, right? Um, and and just totally ripping off Jez Goodwin's kind of aspect warrior concept sketches that were in White Dwarf, uh, well, UK issue one two seven, which was this amazing life changing experience for me. The Eldar and and the the renewal of the Eldar background and figures and that whole thing was just amazing, and that kind of spurred me to kind of create this race. But actually, it's like, yeah, I just kind of ripped off the Fire Dragon and just changed that. And I did, but um, but so I had all this kind of material that uh, was all kind of on random bits of paper stuff so I, I borrowed I didn't have a PC so I borrowed my mum's electric typewriter and typed all this stuff up to say it was legible because my handwriting's awful um, uh, and then put it in with the blood bubbles I'd written and put a cover letter in just saying here's some stuff that I've written um, I'd love to come and work at Games Workshop but, you know it's like if you need somebody I think I literally said if you need somebody to empty the bins I don't mind doing that mm-hmm. um and then, and then, so, uh, and then I sent that off. And then, uh, about a week later, I got a uh, a letter back asking if I'd come up for an interview right. at the design studio. So I'm like, okay, good. Um, so I, I went up to, I travelled up here to Nottingham, and I had an interview with Rick Priestley. Okay. <laughs> that was, you know, not too intimidating. <laughs> Rocking up with not oh, it's Rick. Yeah, you invented Warhammer. Okay, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> again, just like dumb like teenage like first interviews type stuff wasn't literally my first interview but it might as well have been right. um I, again i borrowed a briefcase off my mum but one of the i remember the interview and i had like all my sketches and stuff in it and pictures of my armies and things um but one of the one of the little locks on it was a bit dodgy so i remember having to borrow a, like a metal ruler to jimmy it open mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> so i could get all my stuff out and show them and then i remember and then after the interview i was kind of given a tour of the studio which was basically you know Charlie and the Chocolate Factory type. Hey, welcome to Wonderland. Here are the <laughs> here's all the Oompa Loompas making the miniatures kind of thing. Um, just amazing. Uh, and we took a, a part of that. Obviously, went through games des- games design department. And there was Jervis Johnson and Andy Chambers were playtesting um, the uh, then unreleased Falcon Grav Tank. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was like, oh right, okay. And I remember Andy turning to me and just saying. Um, and he was explaining, he said, oh, yeah, we're, we're doing this. He said, what do you think about that? And I remember, and I, my, I said, oh, you know, well, that sounds really difficult to balance because of, you know, it's like because tanks are like really slow and clumsy and that's kind of what limits their firepower and their, their uh, you know, and how well protected they are. But, you know, like a skimmer tank obviously is going to avoid all of those downsides. And he's like, well, yeah, apparently he was quite impressed with that answer. So, um, and but so, yeah, I did that and got to see some miniature designers and just crazy, awesome, amazing stuff. Um, and then, and that was on a Friday. And then Monday, I got a phone call saying, do you want to come and start working? You've got, you know, we'd like to offer your position as assistant games developer. So a week after that, I was in Nottingham in a new house working for Games Workshop. So it was like crazy two weeks, really. As a game <laughs> but it was developer, one of those, no less. Yeah, well, an assistant games developer at the time. <laughs> but yeah, as a games developer in, like, say, you know, there was the three of us, uh, and then uh, there was Andy Chambers and there was Jervis Johnson and up there was Rick and there was Nigel Stillman in his little office and all these people, Mike McVeigh, we were opposite the heavy metal team. So I was just looking across at guys like Stuart Thomas and all these other amazing painters and stuff. So, yeah, it was quite an experience. And just, uh, you know, you spend two weeks and people keep saying it now, you know, whenever they join the studio particularly but you know they, you spend the first two weeks just pinching yourself and just like i just i was just in the tea room having a chat with jess goodwin uh, what 
that was just crazy. We were we were just talking about Necromunda or whatever cool thing, you know. I, I, yeah, okay, hang on. No, no, still, yeah, definitely here. It is happening. So yeah, that was 1993. 93. And, um, a, yeah, a good year. So and that's, that was the, that's where my life went that way rather than that way. So. So this is okay. So that was at the beginning uh, uh, of your. That's how you got the job, and you started mm. off as a game developer, and uh, and then it's from the sounds of it, there was some. Uh, Psyker cards that you were writing for because it was second edition at the time, and then you... well, I, was, I, I didn't even get to write them. I was just literally sticking the ones that had been written. Oh, I see. Okay, just doing like just the work, <laughs> so, like the, yeah, for absolutely. All, all intents and purposes, you... grunt work is is what it was. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, and then White Dwarf. You mentioned White Dwarf as well. So yeah, yeah. so yeah, we um, it was a two year contract initially. So the system games reference. It was very, essentially part of it was because this was this was when Games Workshop was really expanding. So the the retail chain was expanding, the factory was expanding, and they had they had like a management training program that was going quite well. They wanted to do a similar kind of thing in the studio. They knew they'd need more writers to to kind of the, a lot of the older uh, kind of uh, the the guys that had been working on um, like one fancy role playing early editions of Warhammer and Rotator had gone. They'd left kind of with the Brian Answer and the, this was the new kind of dynamic um, Tom Kirby Games Workshop. So they started off this kind of this program to basically get three young, impressionable assistants and teach them how to, you know, with some basic English skills and the right kind of sensibilities and teach them how to be games developers. So after about a year um, working on the Citadel Journal, we then moved on to, uh, well, myself and Ian Pixel moved on to working for White Dwarf which was pretty much the same thing, but suddenly just upper level. This wasn't just a, a magazine that was going out to about a thousand subscribers, you know, just to, you know, uh, with crazy rules for Norse that we'd made up. And, and then we started publishing other people's stuff later on, actually. Um, and again, you know, people would send in letters we'd publish and, and all kinds of um, weird stuff. Um, and, but then White Dwarf was suddenly, you know, doing battle reports and new release season and uh, the photography was all, you know, it was all full colour and all this kind of stuff. So I spent, I think it was, uh, I think I was on White Dwarf for 18 months, maybe. So 18 months to two years, I can't remember exactly when. Um, doing all, Again, doing all of that kind of stuff um, until uh, they then moved me back up to the games design department. Um, and I was, the first thing, uh, the first thing I wrote going back to games design was the original Codex Sisters of Battle. Really? Um, we've done some stuff before that. So obviously I've been writing for White Dwarf, uh, and we were very heavily involved in the playtest and development of Warhammer Quest. That was the main one. So I'd actually written a couple of the warrior packs for Warhammer Quest and one of the adventure packs called Catacombs of Terror. Right. Um, um, and then my first, but my yeah my <laughs> I remember now my first actual main sort of like proper thing I suppose was my first White Dwarf article was the rules for a squat war engine called the Cyclops, mm -hmm. which was this big Titan killer thing, and it was literally uh, the model <laughs> they plonked the model down on my I think it was Rick just plonked the model down on my desk and said oh we need to write some rules for that. And that was it. <laughs> really? <laughs> like, so that's a, yeah. So that was the process. Um, it was just you came up with. Well, the, that was, the, that, it was for something like that. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. We've had Norman Swales design this really crazy big gun thing. So so I came up with some background for it, and I wasn't quite sure. So I went and talked to Jervis, and he had a couple of ideas about the rules. So I just stole them off him, and 
and then kind of fleshed them out. And it wasn't too bad because it was just a, an article for this thing, and I knew Epic pretty well. But yeah, so that was that was only about two months, three months into the job actually. That really? was quite early on. Um, and then yeah, so we started doing stuff for Warhammer Quest, um, working with Andy Jones who designed that and did quite a bit. Um, three months of just solidly playtesting Warhammer Quest, which was great fun. Um, uh, and, and yeah, so all these things kind of built up and then learning to write the articles for White Dwarf and things. Um, oh, hello. <laughs> I think I've been... Anyway. Um, so, uh, I, yeah, uh, then, so Codex Sisters of Battle uh, was a kind of similar experience, which was I had a brief from Rick, which is like, this is what it's about. It's not quite a main army. These, This is getting... So this was probably 96 by this point. So actually we were starting winding down second edition and winding, starting to prepare for third edition being released in 97. So we hadn't actually started working on, but we all the codexes had been done and it was kind of like the tail end of um, <laughs> Rick's big plan for the games as as it's, and it continues to this day, was what was then called the four-year plan, which was like every each, each edition of the game would last four years. So you, And you'd revisit them alternately. So... Every September, you'd get either a new Warhammer, a new game, or a new 40k, and it kind of like keep cycling round. So it's only just a, a formal release cycle. Um, and of course, the funny thing was that the the first one, I think Warhammer, or whatever, ended up being five years rather than four years. But um, so th this cycle was coming to an end. The codex had come out, and it was definitely in people's minds that a new edition of 40k was going to be coming around soon. So I was kind of given this slightly kind of tail endy project wasn't like Codex Chaos or Tyranids or, you know, it's like, oh, well, we've got, we, you know, we should do some Sisters of Battle and Jez is going to design most of them in Strange. And there's this, uh, and there was a then very new but quite talented figure designer called Brian Nelson, mm -hmm. um, who was just doing some of the priests and, and preachers and stuff along with Gary Morley. Um, and so, yeah, and so that was kind of like the first time I've properly worked with Jez Goodwin uh, and talking about, you know, we went, we'd sit down and he'd be designing the iconography for the different orders and I kind of came up with the names and we talked about, you know, what all the different stuff would be. And I got to write probably one of the most fun codexes I ever got to work on because there was so little pressure on it and so little existing information that needed to go in and all that kind of stuff. I got to, to really play around and come up, you know, like flesh out the age of apostasy and... And that was kind of the first time, I suppose, that some of the stuff I did really bedded into the 40k law, um, so just based on like a, a brief and about 10 quotes that Rick had provided. So here's a question for you. Uh, and uh, you'll have to forgive me because my sister's battle lore knowledge isn't what it uh, should be. My, my wife knows a lot more about it because she's just getting to the army. But she said that there was uh, the original group of sisters. They followed this... Uh, this guy that they were go, uh, go, go van dyer yeah that that's it yes uh, so they, yeah uh and something really bad happened uh in this room and then they turned on him uh but yes. no one knows what that really bad thing was well, well what they're not sure about is that because so basically and, yeah i mean i kind of created that bit so in the law already was this idea that, again just a few quotes and, and kind of some ideas in Rick's head so there's this idea of the age of apostasy and there was this character called Gog Van Dyer who was who had managed who was one of the high lords of terror he'd managed to become both head of the administratum mm -hmm. and the ecclesiarch so he wielded tremendous amount of power essentially running the you know running the bureaucrats of the imperium and the church of the imperium so he basically became a tyrant um, and and this would kind of set off his chain of all these religious wars and the 
original Plague of Unbelief and all kinds of other stuff. And that was what I got to play around with, really. That was really good fun. And one of these things, and this was uh, the origin of the Sisters of Battle, was one of these um, kind of... Uh, he, he kind of came across this very isolated sect of uh, female kind of warrior nuns, basically, called the originally called the Daughters of the Emperor. Okay. On a on a world called Sanlior, and he uh, and he recruited them as his personal bodyguard and harem and, and other weird stuff. But essentially, as a personal bodyguard mostly, um, and they and then they became this elite fighting force, for, but but for like the bad guys essentially. Until um, uh, the his reign ends when basically the Adeptus Mechanicus and the Black Templars and a bunch of other people decide to turn up and they actually attack Terra, um, and they proceed in the Emperor's palace. Or the Ecclesiarchy's palace and stuff, and then uh, uh, a centurion of the Adeptus Custodes comes out from the Emperor's throne room and and takes a handful. I think it's three. I might even have just been the leader of the daughter of the of the brides of the Emperor, uh, and takes her into the Emperor's throne room or into the presence of the Emperor. We don't know quite exactly which bit it was. And then she comes out uh, and essentially chops off Gog Van Dyer's head and executes him for heresy. Um, so nobody knows quite what happened there, but essentially this this bodyguard that were utterly sworn to him and believed he was like the voice of the Emperor and were turned by the intervention of the, the custodians. Um, and then they, and they became, later on, there's a whole thing of Sebastian Thor and they become the Sister of Battle and all this kind of stuff. That's right. I remember, um, I remember so, Thor. Yeah. In fact, it's mentioned in one of the new uh, Psychic Awakening books too. They they allude to it. Uh, yes. And okay, so so you just said that you made up that bit, right? Yes. Yeah. So well, you... the, 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 what? It, sorry, what it came from there was the only the only all, all we really had is his final words, which was one of these quotes, which was like, uh, "I I don't have time to die. I'm, I don't. Yeah, I don't have time to die. I'm too busy." Which was going and it was like going Van Dyer, you know, uh, Ecclesiarch age of possibly final words and so i had to kind of build some kind of scene that led up to those final words right um, and then just before she basically declares him heretic and chops his head off so um it's kind of disbelief that they're going to turn on him i don't have time to die i'm too busy chop um so yeah so but yeah you, i kind so, of i came up with that stuff yeah so do we know why they killed him uh, well, uh, we like to see that. Me- I, well, the version in my head without giving too much away, because I didn't really think I, you know, it's like it was just kind of like a, an ecstatic experience, really, but just kind of this awareness that the, or, or just seeing the suffering of the emperor and realizing the decadence that the imperial church had become, perhaps made her realize that the, they had been serving the wrong people, that they weren't serving the emperor, they were serving the puppet master sort of thing. So, mm. uh, And I was quite angry about that. Okay, so. all right. <laughs> uh, I, th- I think I'll have to take that as, a, uh, as the answer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so an- another question uh, that I have for you, because I'm looking at the chat here, some people are, are shooting some stuff. What are your thoughts on the two lost Primarchs? Um, my thought is that we we'll, uh, we will never know who they are or why they went missing and stuff. And actually, it's uh, um, the mystery is always going to be more entertaining than any answers that are given. Um, and the reality, you know, there's there's the boring reality, which is when Rick was coming up with the 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 list of the twenty legions and stuff like that. They were based off uh, the idea of the Roman legions, and the Roman legions had these two legions that were expunged from their records for their failures. And so the idea of two and eleven being expunged and and uh, like and obviously it kind of built on top of that. I was like, well, they were expunged, but all the other guys turned to chaos, so that must have been something even worse or whatever. Um, but actually, yeah, there is no. 
the, the good thing is there is no answer. There has never been an answer because of that, which means although we kind of hint at things and like, oh, well, the first world's involved and kind of can create a bit of conjecture, there's no, as a writer or as a developer, there was no temptation to kind of give it away because there wasn't an answer. Right. So you couldn't hint too much because it was just, you know, so as much as whatever hints we've dropped in, like the heresy and things like that, they're all pointing towards nothing. There is no, there is no official secret somewhere that is hidden. Right. It's never been decided. So therefore, uh, you don't. There's never a risk of actually stepping over that line and saying too much because it's just pure conjecture. Right. Um, and it, and it's that space. It's the biggest mystery. And it, you know, some people like it because they love the idea that maybe that they can create this crazy chapter that's based on this missing legion and gene seed and all that kind of stuff. And I think it's. Uh, particularly with 40k and age of sigma as well or actually there's gaps where people some people really like to operate on the fringes and in the spaces lots of people are like oh uh, you know the ultra are cool and i've got all this background and all this painting information and i can really get into it and other people are like no i don't want to do that i want the i want the freedom to just create wherever i want and actually those spaces between all the stuff are as important as the stuff that's there interesting and so you know, there's 18 cool chapters nine loyal nine traitor that you can choose from and do all that stuff and then there's two yeah, get to just have some fun, um, and you know, whatever your version of 40k and the the history of 40k is, you get to choose what that bit is if if you want to play with it at all. Right. In the same way that the you know a thousand chapters never ever going to be all named, um, right. so it gives you that space. And I think while on the one hand, this kind of desire for more information and more, and it has to be all precise and uh, and filling all the gaps is kind of understandable it's also counterproductive and i think if, if too much of that robs players and authors and painters and and future games developers and stuff of the ability to create stuff if it's all laid out and there's no room left where do you go where do you get to invent your campaign if every world's detailed if everything you know so i think uh the purpose of the background is to go so far and set stuff up and put things in motion, but the rest of it is up to the players and the authors and the and the gamers to they get to carry, they get to work out the story. They get to relive live out those bits on the tabletop. That's what the game's for and the miniatures and stuff are to carry on exploring where the existing material ends. You know, that makes your blood, your blood angels are the blood angels in your world. You know, and what they do are the is what the blood angels do. Um, that makes and, sense. And I think. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm always a bit wary when you take too much of that power into the center and stop people being able to do that. So, right, uh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I, I like that philosophy because you, you give them basically 80% of it, and then the other 20 they kind of fill in with the rest of their minds. Yeah, uh, so Stephen Carpenter has a question here. It says, uh, uh, what does Gav think uh, about Dorn? Does Dorn still live? If so, where could he be lost on his way to Terra? <laughs> Dorn, I think he's just a He's just a hand, isn't he? I think, I mean, I, I think there's, you know, uh, I think there's too much, you know, I, having even myself hinted at stuff recently about the Primarchs returning stuff as part of the whole general thing. Um, I think too much of it just kind of, if, if everything changes that drastically, then 40K isn't 40K anymore. And I think 
it's one of those mysteries just talking about really actually if you want to kind of cling on to the idea that dawn can return as well and the return of gilliman kind of like opens the door to everybody to believe this and actually it's one of the things i've been writing about in universe as well as the people in the universe want to start believing these things as well in ashes of prospera present logan grimnar the, the great wolf one of the things he's hoping for is the return of lehman russ he's like well actually maybe this is the wolf time maybe russ is returning until you know points out yeah, well, that, that's really bad because he said he's going to come back at the end. If he comes back, we're all dead. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, that's it. It's like he's not coming back to help out. He's coming back to die with us. So maybe stop wishing for that. Um, and similarly, you know, it's like, um, uh, you know, we, we, we kind of, we had uh, Vulcan returning during the, you know, the, the War of the Beasts and then maybe a proper, hopefully, final adios to there. But we never know because it's Vulcan um, and various other things. So, I think it's one of those, uh, whatever you're writing this stuff, it, it, you have to be very careful with that idea of like, yeah, if you close the door, then make sure you open a window. That every mystery you solve, or at least or every thread that you sort of at least spool out a little bit further, that you lay two or three other mysteries alongside it. So there's always more to come, but also more areas to explore. So, I mean, the Dark Angels obviously been a case in point of just like, well, as we've gone back and found out more about them, uh, we still have to try to maintain that element of mystery about their origins and their character while still putting more detail into actually what we know went on. And that's always going to be the tricky bit is as we explore more of the universe, how do you still give it a sense of scale and mystery, I suppose? Yeah, no, I think that that's that sounds like the the marking of a, of a good writer. It's just like they, they leave a lot to your mind to fill in the blanks. They give you the things that are that they that they're giving you, but uh, that that makes total sense, and that actually makes a lot more sense uh, looking back on it. Why isn't this explained? Why isn't that explained? Like, okay, well, maybe that's why. Uh, so that sometimes, you, yeah, sometimes, well, sometimes, sometimes yeah. not. There, it hasn't been written yet, right? That's yeah. it. So I have a well, question. There's, there's yeah. I, I have a question from one of my team members, Erin. Uh, she says because it's regarding one of the tweets that you made recently. Uh, about, oh, okay. about your celestial lions and then she says be sure to ask gav about a celestial lions if uh, she's still allowed to steal your army <laughs> yes well going back to one of those sort of like stuff i made up when i was younger so the celestial lions the name uh, and that was it was the space Marine chapter i gamed with before i and painted before i joined games workshop so you made it and you I, are the you are the creator I, Oh, well, I was in terms of I came up with the name, and I remember at the time. And then, so when we were doing the uh, Codex Armageddon and we did the Third War for Armageddon, the big campaign, and we were doing this big kind of disposition of forces on Armageddon, and there was a list of like Titan Legions and Space Marine chapters and stuff like that. And so I decided to put the Celestial Lions in the list of chapters. I think like I can't remember whether it was the whole chapter or how many companies they'd sent and stuff like that. And it was just a name. In a list, and I, and I also remember uh, at the time, um, Alan Merritt, the IP manager, uh, coming over and saying, "Celestial Lions, that's a rubbish name." <laughs> and I, I'll just, I'll, and I was like, "I'll just wave my hand towards the Space Wolves," and he was like, oh, "Really?" Um, so, but but that was it. They were always just a, a one-off mention of just like me dro- a name dropping, basically. Right. These guys I hadn't even collected for like ten years. Right. I didn't even have any of those models, and so and that was it. And then other people, not even necessarily knowing that, 
picked up the celestial lines and wrote a little bit of background about them and fleshed them out and came up with a color scheme and a history and you know and then and full circle and then and then in Aaron's latest you know Spears of the Emperor novel was this whole and you're like yeah but they're my chapter <laughs> so I made them up um, <laughs> do you know that do you know they're supposed to be blue and purple yeah why well they were when I painted them because I could paint blue and purple they were two colors I could paint um, you know <laughs> so, um, that's cool. And, uh, I love that. But uh, yeah, and they, you know, the space wolves, the celestial lions. There you go. It makes sense to made sense to my fourteen-year-old brain. Um, so, uh, um, so yeah, but everyone's free to have. They have now. Unfortunately, I don't have any of the models left or anything. I've, oh, I've got bad. so little. Yeah, I know. I wish I. I should have hung on to so much more stuff over the years than I did. But you know, you you just kind of you move on, especially when you're working at Games Workshop and you get stuff quite cheap and you there's always more projects going on and stuff. And you like, so those kind of those beaky marines you painted when you were 15 don't really seem that important to keep when you're you know when you're moving house that time or whatever but yeah yeah so we got a question from youtube don't, don't, don't throw away your old models <laughs> yeah it's like uh, i guess it's like a uh, collector's cards right they might return with a lot, lot more value uh okay yeah. so question from youtube here uh what do you think cypher's ultimate goal is do you think he's a good guy <laughs> i'm not gonna tell you <laughs> <laughs> I'm not allowed to tell you. I'm not allowed to decide that. Uh, okay. um, and then, again, I think it's I. Well, um, is he a good guy? Yes and no. I think hmm. um, he's absolutely has an agenda. I think that agenda isn't necessarily the same agenda as the Dark Angels. Um, and I, I see, I see how you're phrasing your answers. I love it. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And. Uh, the stuff well, we, the stuff we know already. Yeah, well, absolutely. Well, the tube comes down, and I just disappear, and that's <laughs> it. You never get seen again. Um, but we're doing a lot, doing quite a lot of the work with the Dark Angels mm-hmm. uh, in the Heresy and in 40K, obviously, has allowed me to kind of the, the cool thing about doing like the Legacy of Caliban series in 40K and some Angels of Caliban and things in uh, Heresy was allowed to. Oh, as I was saying before, never, never going to like connect them up and just say this is exactly what happened and this is what's been going on for ten thousand years. One because that's not my place, because um, that's kind of central IP design studio stuff. Um, but also because the, the the discussion is fun. Mm-hmm. As much as people want, oh, I want an answer. You go, yeah, but as soon as you have an answer, you stop talking about it. That's There's right. nothing to discuss. Yeah. All that stuff we were talking about earlier. There's no mystery. There's no mystery about Cipher. As soon as you know why he's doing what he's doing. And again, I don't. It's yeah. Knowing the pragmatic reasons of why Cipher Cipher also kind of takes some of the mystery away from it. So you know, um, being that um, when Jervis wrote the second edition, Codex Dark Angels, and created this character Cipher, and in his head, he was basically you know as a as a inspiration for it. It was a Cipher was a combination of it was three characters, and I can never remember who the third one was. But it was basically Aragorn. It's like the Return of the King, and the sword that was broken type stuff. Which obviously in itself nods back to later, earlier, like Norse myths and stuff, uh, and uh, the man with no name from the Clint Eastwood movies, like Power, uh, you know, Power This, this, this character that turns up and and stuff happens around him, you know, is an instigator and an agitator and a thing. So I, I say, and I really wish I remember who the third character was. That it was basically this thing. So that was there was never. A, at his inception, there wasn't a goal. There was a he's moving around and thing and and uh, and stuff of importance occurs in his vicinity either because of his fate for that to happen or because of his own you know actions and things like that mm-hmm. i don't think that's necessarily changed he's just a he's a catalyst mm-hmm. for stuff um and but but in the in the process of having to 
look at some of these issues and look at some of the backstory in the heresy and and for legacy of Caliban, I, I kind of I did come up with more stuff and I kind of ran it past the people to be and there is there isn't necessarily it wasn't like he wants to do this he wants to do that and this is what's going on but it more was more of a okay this is never going to be revealed to anyone but what if this was how it happened um and it's certainly something we'll probably see more of because i think there's still plans for you know there's still bits and pieces of the heresy and primarchs novels and stuff like that that would potentially get covered um but i don't think yeah i don't think you're ever going to have a a paragraph in a codex or a novella or something that just says aha yes and i intend to go to the emperor and stab him um and the thing is it gets very complicated because also different writers without a central thing of what he is doing we get this lovely contradiction of our well, writer a thinks his theory is this so in his book he does that and then i do this and then then a codex writer writes something else completely different and all of these things are actually part of the, these are they're a feature, not a bug, you know, of the cipher character. I would say. Yeah, I was going to actually ask you about that. Uh, is there any degree of collaboration when it comes to writing the same characters as different yes. authors? Yeah, definitely. Um... Hello. I need to. Yeah, <laughs> we're live. <laughs> I, I know. I, I need to. Chat. Yeah, yeah, I need to stop my computer going into sleep mode. Right. I have to just move the mouse now and again to remind it that I'm still here. Right. <laughs> So, Bless you. Um, yes. So, yeah, the yeah, collaboration is definitely um, certainly with characters like that, and and also when lots of stuff is very contemporary. Right. So, I mean, um, obviously the heresy and stuff is very much a narrative, but, I, but for instance, the current forty k, so the kind of like the events around the Gathering Storm, the Indomitus Crusade, and and kind of like that that bit of the timeline now is all quite. There's lots going on, so you know, Guy has been doing quite a lot. Guy Haley's been doing quite a lot of stuff around Ultramar and the Blood Angels and things, um, and other. You know, Chris Rate's been doing quite a lot about the Inquisition and Terror and the Custodians and that. So there has to be, even if there's not stuff that kind of locks together in terms of the actual characters and things, it's just kind of getting some of the basic uh, background right. Of like, well, what's the state of this at this particular time? Without trying to put necessary dates and stuff, we go, well, okay. Has any, you know, it's like, has anybody figured this out by this point when the novel takes place, or um, has this happened yet um, in terms of galactic events and things like that? So there's, I think, uh, and we're kind of relying on the editors quite a bit, but also, <coughs> fortunately, obviously between the authors ourselves, but also trying to get, you know, we we have roads into the guys at the design studio hopefully and we can ask particular or via the editors ask particular questions and say oh actually you know who are these you know who was around at this particular time or what was the direction of travel of the narrative of this particular mm. you know for this chapter because i'm going to be writing or, or even just things like have you got any plans for these guys you know because i don't want to tread on any toes um interesting so it's, it sounds like it's actually very organic and it's kind of different in every case uh, but there's similar yeah. uh, practices that you do which is uh, basically <coughs> see if there's anything else that exists out there and talk yes. to the other uh, contributors to the character and yeah. try not to step on anyone's toes. And Hopefully, yeah. yeah. And, and particularly if there's new material coming out. So, for example, um, you know, it's been announced very very recently that I'm um, my next novel is Indomitus. So it's kind of, it's a, sort of a tie-in to the new box set and stuff like that, which is all very exciting. And I got to see Cool Toy Soldiers loads earlier than other people because... So how, <laughs> these how much actually, how much can you tell i know you can't say much uh, uh 
Yeah. But, well, it's kind of... Uh, yeah, I mean, that was, that was a good example of, like, getting this, the material changing okay. some of it because it wasn't nicely the final versions. And so not a lot of it, not in major ways, but because, like, the, you know, the contents of the box, you know, oh, well, actually, we've kind of tweaked the background for these guys. They don't, you know, they're, just, they're, you know, they're like this now rather than that sort of thing. But um, but that was, yeah, that was kind of cool, actually. And I think, uh, essentially, it's a story, uh, you know, it's a story of uh, a group of ultramarines running into the edges of the big Necron Nexus thing that that's kind of like, is at the heart of the kind of like the, that kind of storyline around the box set. Um, and then, <coughs> and then kind of, <coughs> sorry, excuse me for a minute. <coughs> uh, and then getting caught in this and having to make a decision about, well, do we, uh, you know, uh, do we try and stop the Necrons here doing what they, they're doing? Or do we try and, Get out of here and warn the Imperium of the greater threat. Hmm. You know, they're, they're, it's one of those kind of like when you when you're writing space marines, you have to kind of put them in situations which they're not, they can't just shoot their way out of really. So this kind of like moral dilemmas kind of idea. I always, I always remember that I can't remember who said it. That there was a comic writer who was asked, you know, it's like, oh, you know, uh, how do you hurt Superman? And he just replied, emotionally. Um, Interesting, and, and it's the same idea. It's like space marines don't fear anything. They're, you know, physically they're, uh, and you know, they're usually better than whatever they're fighting and stuff like that. So you have to kind of attack them morally and their beliefs and things like that. That's where the conflict for a novel comes from. And so this idea of you know, it's like, well, we train to fight, and there's a present threat, but actually running away might be serving the greater good. Can we actually even physically run away because of this the effect of this nexus and all that kind of stuff? So. And at the same time, you know, a bit of intercharacter kind of, again, not necessarily conflict because they're space means, but kind of interactions on a slightly different level. And similarly, on the Necron side, there's fun. There's a couple of different characters that are not necessarily all going to the same agenda. Uh, both of them, you know, they're sort of, or sorry, there's three characters. Uh, they've all got their own kind of slightly different agendas of what they're doing and, and why they're there. So again, it gives us intercharacter conflict, which is actually, you know, the big picture. I think, you know, that's where 40K works you know well there's these big kind of galaxy changing events but actually we're focused on this character and this is a bit like what it's like you know the character you create for your army it takes stuff down to the level of the reader the player that they again going back to it's the stuff they can kind of almost control these are the kind of stories you could make up for your guys right. um, and i would definitely wanted to do that you know it wasn't it's this isn't a a hard yes an entirety of uh you know a battle group uh, you know, clashing with you know massive chunks of the resurgent Necron Empire and stuff. It's like, no, actually, this is like this is basically a ship's worth of space marines running into trouble. Um, uh, but yeah, and and uh, and all the kind of the hijinks that ensue from from that central dilemma. That's you know, I love that. That's really neat. How do you hurt a space marine emotionally? That's <laughs> that's pretty cool. I mean, that... yeah, yeah. question make him question his faith. Yeah, or or his meaning. Yeah, you know. that can go in a million different directions. I love that. That's super cool. Uh, okay, here's a question that I'm seeing a lot, and it's uh, <laughs> what is your favorite Space Marine chapter? Uh, I would say my favorites are... Favorites? Uh, well, as, as a chapter, multiple Space Marines, um, are the Blood Angels, I think. Um, I've always kind of just liked the flawed hero idea and the and the concept that... Um, uh, so 
yeah, one of those things you kind of learn when you get when you're working in the studio and stuff is that the, there used to be the big four chapters. It was the Ultramarines, the Space Wolves, the Dark Angels, and the Blood Angels. And they kind of still are, but lots of other people have, have kind of risen in prominence. And people used to be saying, like, oh, you know, why don't the Imperial Fist get a codex or these guys? And the reason was that those those four chapters embodied four very different ideas, which is you had the, the, the Ultramarines who were orthodoxy, the Space Wolves who were unorthodoxy, hmm. uh, the Dark Angels who were physically pure but spiritually corrupt, or not corrupt but flawed, hmm. and then the Blood Angels who were spiritually pure but physically flawed. Yeah, interesting. Uh, and so, and that idea of these heroes who have to overcome. So essentially, the the, the Dark Angels' problems are all of their own making. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> for for whatever reason, ten thousand years ago, somebody told a lie, told a bit of a porky pie, and then. And it's kind of, and then hiding that lie has actually caused them so much more grief than probably. And people say, "Oh, why did they?" It doesn't. It almost doesn't matter why they lied, because actually, what they did is they lied to cover the lie, and then they have to lie to cover. The, and it's the ten thousand years of accumulated lies wow. is the problem, not the original lie. Right. What, you know, um, and it's like, yeah, you know, oh, everyone else went to care stuff. Yes, it doesn't matter what it. There was whatever the reason was they felt was right at the time but anyway but it's the consequences 10,000 years later and the consequences for the blood angels are the flip side you know their primark the most heroic most awesome primark there is i love sanguinius he is the hero of the heroes heresy and and you know he does everything he is pure of heart he is tempted at the end and doesn't go with it and he dies fighting horus knowing that he's going to face his horus even though he knows he's going to kill him and all that stuff which makes him so awesome and doing that that act resonates ten, again ten thousand years later. An act of heroism rather than sort of a flawed kind of spirituality corrupts and, and creates this physical flaw in his, in, in his descendants, in his you know the black rage and the, and uh, the, sort of like the red thirst. And so and and they they try to rise above that flaw. Um, and so there, yeah, I love the character of the the blood angels. And I didn't really get to write them very much because lots of other authors have been doing a splendid job. I say like most most recently Guy Haley, but um, would you say that he's your favorite Primark? Would you say that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just again, I, if I'd had a chance to write somebody more than I had, I mean, you know, you come to find stuff about all of them as you write them because you you need to kind of connect with your subjects and stuff like that. But yeah, Sanguinius from you know way back when from the original uh, uh, Bill King. Uh, you know, color text and the uh, Adrian Smith picture of Horus versus Emperor and Dead Sanguinius, and uh, he's like, no, he's yeah, he's just got the most, he's got the best story, <laughs> you know, the, in terms of the you know heroes of the uh, of uh, the Horus Heresy. So and and then that tra the real tragedy of the floor mm -hmm. <coughs> and its effects ten thousand years later. That's so interesting. Uh, that's really neat seeing the, the the juxtaposition between those four chapters or legions well that was that was it so when you come to something and people say oh yeah we know because with third edition the you know um the black templars were quite elevated in a sense because john blanche did them for the cover and there was a, he did, and and then later on it became even more of a thing of arm again but actually you go well okay you can come up with all sorts of background and cool things that are differences and stuff but in terms of those that paradigm of who they are where do you put different chapters where other places you know they're either on a spectrum of those kind of two things or or you have to try and find something else which is why kind of like you know we, the the faith thing ended up being the the black templars for instance they they in a way they managed to break the mold in another way they're unorthodox but not like the space was they're unorthodox in in that um 
that they never ended the Great Crusade. They're, they're, they're more like those original Crusading Space Marines, not the Space Marines we get now and stuff. And then more more latterly, the, the idea of actually the faith in the Emperor. They are the faithful Space Marines, the ones with genuine religious fervor in the Emperor, as opposed to the chapter cult. And you know, there's a subtle but important difference there. So, um, yeah, I think that's what you need to do when you're creating something like that. And it's the same with lots of things. You know, it's like, oh, right, you know, uh, invent a new aspect warrior you're like well you can just come up with a new gun but actually what's the aspect what's the what's the underlying part of Kane mm-hmm. that they're representing you know the destroyer or the avenger or the 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 hawk the the swift death the well, you know it can be something but it has to it can't be like it can't be superficial it can't be about the gun they carry and their armor you can yeah you can just invent that but why is there an aspect of Cain that these people have chosen to worship and so it's less it's more of a complicated question then and also games wise it's like you end up duplicating. So, oh, yeah, but it's just another close combat guy. Why not just take Banshees or Storfians? Or it's just so, you know, when you've got so many variants of a thing coming up with more variants, you know, it's ever diminishing returns, really. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting sometimes when you see stuff added in and you're thinking, oh, okay, right, as a writer, how does that how does that feed back into what those general concepts are so you can explore them? Um, yeah. So, who would, uh, who do you think would win? <laughs> the questions are going in this direction. Uh, who do you think would win in a fight between Horus and, and Lehman Russ? In a fight between Horus and Lehman Russ? I think we found that one out, didn't we? That's, uh, that's, kind, of, that's kind of covered in one of the books. And it didn't go very well for Lehman Russ. <laughs> it didn't, you know, uh, right? But was it because he was it because he couldn't win or he didn't win? If that makes sense. Uh, well, yes, I do understand. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that at the height of his power, and that's kind of the whole point, at the height of his power, and even as into the height of his power, Horus was unbeatable by any of the Primarchs. Mm-hmm. He was, you know, he was the avatar of all four Chaos Gods. He was, he, you know, there's a reason why the Emperor himself has to confront Horus. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and that's kind of like, that's the whole shtick, I suppose, of the siege itself and stuff. Is Everything is all about arrowing into that confrontation and why everything else gets stripped aside and everything else is tried and every, the Legion's fighting and demons by the million fighting and all kinds of stuff but it comes down to this conflict with these two numinous beings for the fate of mankind um and so uh, and so that that necessitates horus has to be unbeatable to that point it requires the emperor the emperor's intervention to defeat him and so uh you know pre chaos ascension would lehman Russ beat him should he have kind of gone back in time and killed him before he ascended? You know, if you had time to go, if you could go back in time and shoot Hitler kind of stuff. That's what, you know, that's what Lehman Rush should have done. He probably should have found some kind of warp hole and gone back and killed baby Horus or something. But anyway, um, <laughs> uh, uh, it depends. Hor- Horus was a consummate warrior, but he was, he was most definitely a consummate commander and leader and general mm. more than anything else, I think. So, um, so, you know, Horus would never get himself in the position where, he would be at a disadvantage to Russ. Right. Um, so even if, you know, it's like, even if Russ kind of, you know, the entirety of, you know, the, uh, the Mournival would be waiting for a start and then all of it and the Justicar and everyone else, you'd have to go through the entire Legion to get to Horus first, you know? Um, so I think that, that, you know, it's, it's a question Horus would never let you answer. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess that's the answer. Yeah. So uh, on I that, that one, <laughs> Let, okay, let's assume there was just, a, was just a hypothetical, hypothetical fun, fun 
uh, Royal Rumble Royal between Rumble. all the Primarchs at the same time. Who would be the one that... Okay, Horus not supercharged with all... Yeah. Who would win? <laughs> Who would win the Royal Rumble? Yeah. Well, I, I would... Yeah, I don't know. Because they're all kind of sneaky and stuff. And I'm tempted to kind of... I'm, I'm tempted to go with Vulcan, really, just because he's probably the... He's just got survivability. Oh, perpetual, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, but... Uh, and you just know the Khan's going to be the one doing all the weird stuff of like getting thrown over the top rope and then bouncing off the rail and back in <laughs> and landing on the announcer's table and stuff like that. Um, he'll be Kofi Kingston. And um, uh, so, uh, f- yeah, but that said, you know, interestingly, of course, there's Mortarian who's just like, Mr. I just take it, I just keep taking it and taking it and I'll just never blink, I'll never back down. Um, uh, and Kerr's hanging out in the corner, kind of just being snide about the whole thing. Um, but <laughs> but he absolutely know actually in the other corner is going to be Gilliman telling the other three what to do and they'll be ganging up and throwing oars over the rope together. <laughs> wouldn't they? So, but then somebody's going to definitely turn on Gilliman and probably Dawn. Actually, he's the one who's going to actually at some point turn and throw Gilliman over the top rope. Um, <laughs> you reckon? So that's fun. Uh, that's fun. Yeah, I oh. think in the literal Royal Rumble, yeah. In the terms of like more fighting, yeah, it's all you know. They're, they're kind of entertaining, but this kind of circumstance—they've each got you know. It's like who gets to jump on who is who. You know, it's like uh, in, in a straight-off fight. Generally, I usually ranked it. With in no particular order, but the top three fighters, I think I get Corax. I, I, I say this through Corax's mouth in um, at the start of Deliverance Lost, I think it is, which is like Angron because he's Angron, uh, Sanguinius because Sanguinius, and I think Horus. I think are just the three. Uh, but Russ is in there as a wild card, probably. On mm-hmm. on any given day, he might be able to take out one of the other ones if he's got a plan to do it, sort of thing. So, but just a, just out and out fighter, like straight up. Sword out. Um, I mean, the lions up there as well, and like a consummate swordsman and stuff like that. But I, I think, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, that you know, it makes sense. There's some obvious ones, like you, you got Angron, who's who can shoulder press the, the Warhound Titan. <laughs> yeah, well, he'll just go through you and keep going, you know, um, and and absolutely, you just have to put him down to stop him, um. Right, but you know, but that's then again, I wrote that before we knew that you know Vulcan was immortal. So <laughs> keep killing him, keep coming back. All right, so it's like, like I can do this all day. <laughs> <laughs> so here, okay, here's a question for you, uh, and you may not be able to answer this, or you may. I don't know. I'm just going to ask it and see what you say. Uh, if you could, if you could retcon a single element of 40k lore, uh, what would it be? If I could retcon a single element of 40k lore. What would it be? Um, oh, well, I would say, yeah, uh, I'm not sure there is because I don't, it's very hard for me to think in those terms because I'm, I'm all, because it's always evolving and I've been with it so long that it's like, uh, I suppose I might get rid of the Rainbow Warriors. No, well, I don't know. People have done some really cool stuff with the Rainbow Warriors now, though. The Rainbow Warriors project is really cool. So why would I get rid of that? Um, you know, even though it just started off as a bad joke name. Um, so, uh, I don't know. I, there's so much of it as well. You 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 know, it's threatening causality. Like if I take this thing off, then all this stuff collapses mm. and things like that. Right. Um, I might change some of my worst jokes, I think, <laughs> in bad puns and stuff <laughs> and stuff like that. Uh, 
So I can't, yeah, I generally, my brain doesn't think that way. I can't, you know, it's like this, if I, there's, there's a million and one things. If I started from scratch and I saw how certain things panned out, I might do differently and stuff, but I don't know. Um, yeah, I'm really bad at hypotheticals. I think it's the short answer. I don't, that's I don't, fair. I, that, that's, yeah. I mean, that, <laughs> that's the answer. Uh, yeah. Uh, I I've, I've had 27 years of dealing with the reality of it, and that's what you do. You just brain injury. Like, this is, and even if it wasn't that way last week, this is how it is now. Right. That was, famously, if it was once told, that was then, this is now. Um, okay. So, well, you know. Maybe a more pointed question, semi. Uh, okay, maybe yeah. we can rephrase it this way. Uh, if there was any one character that you could bring back in a narrative way, who would that be? Okay. And how would you do it? How would they come back? Right. Uh, I'm trying to think of all the people that disappeared. Then, I, well, um, a character I could bring back in a in a narrative way. I think. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's. Um, if I was kind of given ultimate power. And and just to really shake things up, actually, the character I think that would come back uh, and and be the most entertaining in the forty first millennium, actually, just to think about, it, would be the Khan. Yeah, I think um, if you think Gilliman wasn't impressed with what was going on, uh, you wait to see the Khan sees what's going on, and I think he's one of those, uh, particularly with just the hand of Chris Rate in Horus Heresy and how he's done the White Scars and stuff. They're one of those that were, uh, and also ran sort of chapter in Legion, had some kind of fairly shallow stereotype kind of background and stuff like that. And he took them and just made them amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, uh, and the, Khan, the character of the Khan in particular, as we learn more about him, you just think, actually, he's, ama- he's probably my second favourite Primark. So, you know, um, uh, bringing him back and... Uh, and the, yeah, the return of the Warhawk would be something fairly spectacular for the forty-first millennium. Um, yeah, more so I think even than the Lion or Russ. So. Yeah, yeah. So here's a question from Steve. how I do it. I don't know. You just ride back out and again, right then. Well, that's them all dead. Let's <laughs> sort something else out now. Um. <laughs> uh, here's a question from Stephen Carpenter. He says, uh, "Gav, what is your favorite Xenos army to play as, and why?" Thanks for your work, by the way, building 40k. Um, Eldar. I'm an Eldar. Eldari. Craftworld, particularly. Um, fan. I've been, like I say, for since White Dwarf 127 and the Aspect Warriors and the Avatar and Farses and all that. The modern Craftworld Eldar, when they were in, just blew me away. And, uh, and I went out and I bought loads of models and started. And I've had most of them are still in a case up there. Um, just bop beside me of my sort of like Rogue Trader era Howling Banshees and all that stuff um, and I love the background and I love writing about Eldar and I love um, I always like the idea of these kind of like the a, a real synergistic army like these quite very specialist troop types in the aspect roads and stuff and actually getting them to work together and they're very powerful mm-hmm. but very kind of if it goes wrong it can go wrong quite spectacularly um, so yeah, I mean, again, my my one regret, I suppose, from my time at Games Workshop, and it's not a regret so much as just the way things were, but was when I the one chance I got to write an Elder Codex was during the period when they were only like forty eight pages long, and mm-hmm. um, we did all the mini codexes for like 
sales reasons and it was not <clears throat> it was quite interesting because it forced us to be creative with the way we portrayed background and stuff we couldn't have pages and pages of background stuff so we had to kind of get ideas across for a very short, short space of time but actually i would have loved to have written a nice 80 96 page monster eldar codex and getting into some of the background and stuff like that so yeah um eldar all the way <laughs> so how much of the uh the eldar uh, lore has come out of your brain uh, bits of it, but actually there was so much of it. I, I've tried always to <coughs> to build on what was there before, really, with the old art. Okay. Um, and having, like I say, having worked with Jez on lots of projects, but on the old art and picked his brains about all kinds of stuff um, uh, uh, over the years, I suppose I've been kind of fortunate enough to be able to explore some of those in the Rise of the Nari books and Path of the Old Art and the, like the Phoenix Lords books. So um, I suppose one of the things is like with the Phoenix Lords books are kind of fleshing out some bits of the fall and the, the Phoenix Lords I find one of the the cool little avenues for us to explore some of that ancient history, well, <clears throat> recent history for the Elder, but fairly ancient for the Imperium. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I mean... I've, there's all kinds of stuff I've written that people come back to me and sort of say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's really cool. And that wasn't, you know, it's like that changed all, all of this. And I was like, I didn't really think of it at that time. But I think um, the thing I, the thing I'm most proud of adding, I suppose, to 40K was with Inquisitor. Uh, in So that was in 2000. Um, and took, again, working with Rick on some of that, but took the idea of what the Inquisition was and kind of reinvigorated it and, and loads of stuff we created then with John Blanche and Rick and some input of Alan Merritt as well resonates to, to this day. There's still stuff to Death Watch and we're just like, you know, we wanted to include a Space Marine. So I came up with this idea well, of how could you have Space Marines from any chapter you want, really, but they all kind of are the same and operating not as part of that chapter. How would you get an, how do you get a Space Marine into an Inquisitor's Warband? Because it's just a bit weird. Right. So I created the Death Watch. Um, and uh, and the idea of the factions and and the Thorians and the radicals and and kind of Puritans and stuff and and again kind of exploding the idea of the Inquisition as an organisation rather than just a calling of a whole bunch of individuals really, you know it's like the uh, and I'm going back to lots of the original Inquisition stuff and and sort of like um, the Realms of Chaos books and things and looking at kind of what they were like so Arcoflagellants and uh, you know. Um, I don't know, all kinds of other stuff that we just created a single character but kind of permeated and kind of ended up being part of mainstream 40K. Mm. <laughs> but also just the effect it's had on people's perceptions of the Imperium and things like that. So you, that was a great project to, and I think was very different from, say, writing a codex for an army because um, it delved into the Imperium in such a different way. How would you describe, would you describe your experience, your experience? Uh, when... All of the authors met together to to write about the battle. All <laughs> oh, right. Well, that was awesome. I mean, been in, involved with the heresy for some time, but um, sorry, I'm just going to cough. <coughs> bless, right, you. Um, bless you, bless you. Uh, so, yeah, when we kind of got into that room in, for the first sort of siege of terror meeting, and it was just, it was like, right, okay. Um, and just being very aware of how much weight and expectation that series is going to carry mm -hmm. as not just the culmination of the Horus Heresy, but as an entity in and of itself. <coughs> and how 
um, I'll say, and, and and also the the duty we had to everything that came before, all the other authors that you know that were written, and the characters that people have been following for fifty five books, um, and and uh, and being very aware of kind of deliver, hopefully delivering more than people expected, not just meeting their expectations, but trying to exceed them and give them an experience that was a one-in-a-lifetime opportunity to write something like this in the 40K universe that's just would hopefully, as a, as a hopefully as individual books, but as a series particularly, just becomes seminal. Um, uh, and so very excited and absolutely terrified at the same time to be included in that mix. Mm -hmm. um, and particularly, particularly because it was... Uh, I'm not given like you know all the stuff that I've written and things like that, but actually I'm not a particularly keen researcher, um, and so I you know I kind of I particularly with 40k and stuff I managed generally managed to get away with just having known stuff you know the benefit of having worked at Games Workshop for 14 years and then carried on writing in the universe for another 13 years um, is that you know I kind of know the stuff, but actually. Like with uh, Indomitus, like when something new comes out, I actually have to sit down and read it and find out, well, actually, do these things do now? What are these guys called? And I have to learn stuff. And obviously, with everything, every single strand of the Horus Heresy that goes into the Siege of Terror, and I'm trying to, I, I put it all together. I mean, obviously, I've been reading the books and stuff and kind of trying to keep up as much, but you just end up like, I can't think about this because, you know, I can't worry about their story because I've got to try and focus and finish on uh, the, you know, what the Dark Angels are doing, and that doesn't impact onto them. So I'm just going to end up. So, but suddenly it all becomes very relevant when you write the Siege of Terror. So just my, my reread and kind of read list for preparation for the first wall was about 750,000 words hmm. of novels and stuff, which all directly just fed into like the Imperial Fists, the Iron Warriors and stuff like that, which I kind of, you know, kind of crammed again and had to make, you know, make notes and what are, these guys, what are the trajectories of these guys and chatting to the authors and stuff. So you know, I was kind of aware of that going into... I mean, I've kind of avoided most of that for the Heresy because I had the Raven Guard, which are kind of doing their own thing on the side over here. And then and then there was kind of like, yes, there was the intersection of like the Unremembered Empire stuff and Angels of Caliban. But again, I've been kind of on top of that in the meetings and things like that mm -hmm. uh, and reading the books as they were going along. But suddenly it's like, actually, I haven't really paid too much attention to what the Imperial Fists are up to because I haven't touched them really. Right. You know, I thought, like, okay, well, let's go back and read all John French's cool stuff and, you know, and going back to even stuff like the Lightning Tower of really early days and, uh, and again on the Iron Warriors side and, uh, trying to find all, everything that feeds into their story and, and just what little details can you kind of tease out and stuff. So, And I was kind of aware of that as going into this meeting of like, this is going to be a lot of work, isn't it? <laughs> so. I imagine, I mean, it would probably be impossible. I mean, there's so much that's written. And to try to keep up with everything all at once, plus to write your own stuff, it's just, oh yeah, yeah it's, it's unreasonably impossible. Yes, I mean, that, that room... You know, and and I mean, it's, it, it's I mean, the Horus Heresy has been great, and there's been meetings which have been like, oh yeah, that was amazing, and we talked about that thing. But but then yeah, the Siege of Terror stepped it up, and, and again, stuff that will never even necessarily hit the page or people will know about, but just talking about underlying metaphysics and ideas and how stuff works and how we you know what's the motivations of different characters and the character of the legions and the cultural things and all kinds of other stuff and why would the Khan be doing this and that and and with guys who are all very creative and amazing in their own right as well and just been and then then pouring all of that stuff into you and you becoming this container for all of this fastness and like i have to try and get this onto a page somehow uh and it not be like five hundred thousand words long um 
say then this business of just trying to chop out everything down to what's the story how do we these aren't background books these aren't the four twelve black books that are just kind of like dumping stuff like there's narrative and characters and a and a a, a plot that we have to follow to make these satisfying reads as well as you know it's not like 150,000 words of info dump you know right. like, and in this here see this stuff happens I know we want to evolve these characters and, and other stuff so yeah it was it was probably up until the book I'm about to start writing, I suspect probably the hardest book I've ever written, probably, but probably the most rewarding because, you know, that's how it works. You know, well, I put this much effort and this much and overcome this much challenge. So the reward and feeling of, of accomplishment of having done it, <laughs> uh, it, was, it was high as well. So, so uh, kind of going on that, just a related note there. What is your, what's your process, your, your writing process? How do you approach writing a character um where how do you start uh, what's the yeah yeah what's your process well, well the, the thing is it we, we arrive at sort of like what what i write in slightly different ways depending on what it is so so some things don't just been a good reason was like the black library approached me and said you know so well we you know we've got this we've got this new box set coming out and these are you know and uh but actually we want quite a character focused story and we think you'd be quite good at this so so I'm like okay cool yeah i'll well, definitely do that sounds sounds fun and lucrative um so uh so from that it was more a case of looking at the material and, and then and from the material that's being created trying to tease together as I say, trying to take that big background of the, you know, the the crusade running into this pariah nexus, and 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 actually go, well, I've got to encapsulate that into a story uh, through the eyes of some characters. So, which characters do I need to do that? And the box set kind of has these particular characters. That are like, well, these are my viewpoints that I can play with. How am I going to do this? And so, and kind of piece by piece, uh, you know, you start with like, well, I've got all of these elements that have to be in here because mm -hmm. it's it's kind of too brief. It's to it's a commissioned thing. Um, uh, and then, you, and then, yeah, you start putting together and teasing the story together, and then start getting some character dynamics of like, well, actually, if I get made this guy more experienced, although he's, although he's you know, this, or this guy's more inexperienced, but he's the superior, and that gives us nice dynamic and stuff like that. And then, uh, and then you kind of get the shape of the overall story through to something like uh, Armageddon Saint, which was the latest Last Chances, which actually I've been kind of, I'd had an idea for, or. Probably for the, I mean, it's 15, 15 year gap between Annihilation Squad and the release of Armageddon Saint, um, and probably about seven or eight years ago, I started thinking about, well, maybe I should go back to the, the last chances. Actually, I know, you know, so I ended it in a particular way, and uh, and I was kind of, yeah, at the time, it's like I've done three books, I'm not going to do any more. I'm not Dan. I can't just keep writing the same. You know, I, do, I, I create series in different ways. I have end, I, I work towards an ending sort of thing. Um, whereas Dan, particularly because of his comics background, is very good at just keep spinning. You know, he follows characters and they keep going and going and going. Whereas I don't really work that way. And so, but it's like, but actually, actually, be kind of, kind of fun to go back. And I've had some ideas of how I'm going to do it. And then it, and then kind of like the whole um, sort of Gathering Storm, not Gathering Storm, uh, yeah, Gathering Storm, and, and kind of like the whole. Uh, kind of great rift and all this kind of stuff kicked off and it was like yeah and actually I've had an idea of actually that kind of ties into this um, and I kind of pushed a little bit harder and then and then they came and Black Library came back and said yeah actually cool yeah we'll, we'll commission that and it kind of coincides nice it's the 20-year anniversary of Kill Teams coming up uh, of 13th Legion was coming up and all this kind of stuff so um, 
so that was very different because I was coming. I already kind of had some ideas. I already knew who the characters were. They were well-established characters, and how I was going to kind of rejuvenate their relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and then it was just the de- so the story was kind of there. The details of actually where that story took place and the plot, <laughs> funnily enough, were the things that got added on later. Interesting. Um, because they, they, there's two separate things there. There's the mechanics of going from A to B and fighting C and doing things, right. which is the vehicle for explaining, or vehicle for exploring the actual narrative, which is what the story is about, what are the themes, what are the character interactions. Um, so sometimes you've got the things. So in, uh, th- that's two really good ones. I had lots of things from the Indomitus. It's like, it includes these things, and these are the, kind of within these events that are happening. So piece these together and layer on some characters. Whereas I had some characters that... I had an arc and a story that I wanted to do, but I had to find the venue and the and kind of like the place in the background and the timeline to do it, I suppose. That's but end up in the same place. Yeah. Right. And then what yeah. yeah. And then from there I kind of and depending on how much preparation I could do, I kind of just sometimes that's enough. They'll commission it on that. Sometimes you need to chop it up into a bit more detail. Um and you know uh, of, of exactly what happens. Um, the more the more preparation I do, the, f- the easier I find it to write. So I, I often very much front. I'm a, definitely a prepper, not a pantser in terms of like, uh, you know, I try I try and create a breakdown that I'll follow and then write through. Uh, and, and occasionally um, I'll even, uh, if I've got multiple viewpoints, one of the things I might even do is I'll write. <laughs> I'll write one whole viewpoint story mm-hmm. in one go. So it won't necessarily be, I don't necessarily do chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four. It's just I'll write their story and all the bits that are relevant to them. And then I'll write the other character story and then I get to splice them together at the relevant points. And then you have to do a bit more kind of editing and making it all work, but actually getting into the head and the the, the story of a particular character rather than having to cut back the four between them. You go, well, his arc, her arc is this. So I'm just going to write it because I know what happens. And I could do that all the way through to the end, uh, and, and then and then put the novel together from from the the various kind of threads and storylines that I've written separately. Hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, so it, it, uh, but then a lot of novels are just single viewpoint. Start page one, start writing until you reach the end page. Right. Rewrite. <laughs> um, <laughs> How many uh, revisions do you typically do you find uh, you have to do? I well, I I do a revision myself. Well, I usually do a revision myself uh, before I send it to Black Library. So it's kind of like draft one, really, because the first one is draft zero, and then draft one is kind of like the proper draft. And then usually, I, I'm I'm very fortunate uh, that I usually only have about one redraft after that. I think first wall because it was such an important novel, and I think I did another rewrite after that. So that was three rewrites, something like. Not 40k, but when I did the Red Feast, which is that Age of Sigmar novel, and that was very, there was lots of kind of moving parts. That was between another one, between two editions of Age of Sigmar, so lots of stuff changed. So I ended up doing about four drafts of that, I think. Some of it just to, to be like, because like, oh, actually we've changed this. You know, we've actually the the uh, that's not quite how it works in the new. You know, the background has evolved a bit and stuff like that. Um, but usually, yeah. So it's usually three. There's usually three full drafts, I suppose. But sometimes. Um, and then you know that you know including any kind of extensive rewrite and then obviously there's still like there's like an edit of like just looking for typos and little word changes and going through the actual copy itself the final version really and just tweaking bits of language here and there but you can't you know oh i can't i'll just insert another chapter here it's like no a bit too late to do that at this point so <laughs> so tom sapanen asks 
Loved your Imperator book, Gav. Can one Mechanicus fan expect more Admec books in the future? I think with all these things, it's always I'd love to. It's just a question of when, and, and particularly because things tend to happen in series. So I've already got several kind of plates spinning, um, like, uh, like Return to the Last Chances, got the ongoing Rise of the Inari, got an ongoing Age of Sigmar with the the cool, the kind of like the uh, Red Feast being book one of that, uh, and then you've got the one-offs like Indomitus coming in. Um, and the Phoenix Lords, keep, I usually get at least one or two emails or messages a week saying, oh, you know, you can do another Phoenix Lord novel and stuff. So I really enjoyed doing the Depths Mechanicus. And I particularly, uh, Titans are a particular love of mine. I, I, One of the main draws into the hobby and everything was Depths Titanicus back in the day. And so I love that whole kind of side of stuff. Um, so maybe, yeah, but there's nothing planned, I suppose. Is the, I'm actually just kind of like um, doing some kit bashes for some crazy... Dead Mechanicus stuff at the moment, but uh, and I love a lot of the new models and, and the feel of it. So, but there's nothing, yeah, there's nothing on the schedule. So, nothing for at least two years, I'd say. Okay, that's a fair question or a fair answer. Um, so, uh, we have a this has come up a bunch, so I'll just ask it to satisfy the, the amount <laughs> of times it's come up. Uh, what is what is your what, what do you read? What's your favorite kind of novel to read? And uh, <laughs> I don't, yes. Uh, well, I, I read a lot less than I used to, and I tend to find myself reading a lot more graphic novels and things these days just for time. I have a six year old who's very time consuming, amongst other things. Um, uh, and also, I suppose it's, it's kind of, uh, yeah, I, I always find myself kind of sort of tossing up between just going back and visiting old favorites. You know, I'm not going to read Lord of the Rings again, um, uh, or, or or trying to find new voices and things like that. And so, um, uh, so I tend to still read some sci-fi, uh, not so much fantasy stuff at the moment. Um, but certainly for the last ten years or so, I, I, I tend to read a lot more non-fiction. Actually, I tend to uh, the way I look at it, and I don't know if so, sort of like. When I was, say, before working at Games Workshop and in my early years there, I was sort of like, I was cramming the machine full of fiction. I loved reading sci-fi and I loved reading fantasy uh, books and stuff like that. And that was all just going into my brain and, and then people were recommending stuff and it was all going in. Uh, but then once I kind of filled up on that, I think what I needed more was more real-world stuff, history hmm. and and kind of like popular science books and, and kind of like a different a different take on that um, and kind of taking inspiration from different sources. And one of the things I suppose I'm always wary of is is what I kind of call the the copy of a copy effect. The idea is like you know, if you kind of photocopy something and then if you copy that and then copy that and copy, it just gets worse and fader and it becomes a, an imita a pale imitation of the original. Mm -hmm. So actually... I don't. I, I like drawing inspiration from sources rather than other people's inspiration from those same sources. If hmm. that makes sense. So, so, yeah. Um, yeah. so that I feel that I've kind of gone to the well rather than from the bucket, sort of thing. Um, makes sense. And I, yeah, and I, and the problem is, I think also that kind of uh, that danger of the modern day and kind of technology we have now and stuff like that is I'm just easily distracted, and I, and so 
I will, you know, I can sit down and read for a bit, but then I'll be looking at my phone or I'll be, I've, I've, I'm terrible and I've fallen out of the habit and all that screen time, all those things that make us, you know, and I, and I tell myself, it's like, oh yeah, we should sit down and read more. And also because I've been doing quite a lot of reading for work lately with the like, heresy and some other stuff I've been working on. It's like, actually, I'm just going to play on my phone for a bit and not do any reading. So um, I, I, I start a lot of stuff. And I don't really finish a lot of stuff, I suppose, as well. Just a, you know, again, butterfly brain is like, oh, that was kind of cool, but actually, um, I need to. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's it's. I I I I used to just devour books, you know, like a lot of people do, but I just can't do it now. It's just my. I don't know what like I say whether it's a combination. I'd love to feel that I have the time, but I know I'm just making excuses really, and I just want slightly easier engagement of like watching Netflix or doing something on my phone or or, or actually one of the things I've very definitely doing is trying to give myself more hobby time so again just sitting and painting so i probably should listen to more audio books i guess uh, that should be the solution i find that that's what i, I do that's what i do because mm. uh you know i can yeah. do two things like i can go like I, can go I go on a jog, go on a jog and listen to stuff right yeah, yeah and there's like yeah. A consistency about it uh i, sp I suppose the other thing is because i don't i work from home uh, you know, my lunch. I, you know, I just go downstairs and have quite a short lunch break, and and especially at the moment, home teaching her son because the school's closed and all that kind of stuff. So actually, uh, the, some of the times, you know, it's like reading. You know, I used to read on the commute to work on the bus. So that's like forty-five minutes, and then on the way home, or sit down at lunchtime and have a half an hour read and stuff. So those, or read, you know, go to bed and read, and then before bed and stuff but these days i'm so tired when i go to bed i fall asleep <laughs> it's like, and then i get woken up by a small child jumping on me at seven o'clock in the morning and i'm not so again uh, and the weekends you know they're full of stuff you know it's just adulting um stuff where whereas you know, i used to not think of anything of like just like you know sitting in bed reading stuff until like 11 o'clock in the morning and then get up and maybe do something and then you do you know play video games for five hours and then you know that time no longer exists and so i have right. to spend it very frugally yeah. and and books unfortunately as much as i know i should try a bit harder books are one of the things i've kind of had to let go a bit um just said so i've got time to do some other stuff right and uh okay so we're we have the last few minutes here guys and so if you guys have any questions for gav uh type them out and i <laughs> do my best to find a few because Quick. uh Quick fire round. We won't have time for all of them, but uh, there will be uh, some. And uh, okay, in the meantime, as uh, the question's coming, because it takes like ten seconds. If you hear a noise in the background, that's my that's my dog trying to get in. Uh, okay, uh, let's see. Next Primark model. Okay, that's not gonna. Um... One of the bad ones. <laughs> One of them seems more likely. Bad as an evil. Uh, well, bad is in chaos, I guess. Yeah. Okay, here but we go. I, I, I have no idea. <laughs> favorite non-40K sci-fi book? Uh, favorite non... Uh, Ian M. Banks culture novels, um, particularly uh, Accession. I love Accession. Stephen Carpenter um, says thank you. Stephen Carpenter, he says thank you. He paid for that. He paid two British yeah. pounds. So that popped up. It's prominent, so I'll mention him. <laughs> uh, okay. Who's your least favorite Primark? Uh, my least favorite Primark would be... Uh, I don't know. I don't have least favorites. 
because I, I I challenge myself to find something cool about everything because I have to I might one day have to write about them and make them cool. Okay. <laughs> I mean that's fair. I mean, there's... So uh, the, the one, the one. To be honest, the one, the one, uh, my least, fa- not not my least favorite, but the one I wouldn't write about, and I had an opportunity to for the Primark series, and I turned it down was Horus because it was too much expectation and too much. I just couldn't, I couldn't handle it. To be honest, I, I, I choked, and I, I decided I, that's when I decided I wanted to do Lorgar instead because I had an idea for that. <laughs> uh, so here's a, here's a good question. How do you even begin to imagine a world so grim dark when writing? Well, um, history mostly, I think, uh, history and, and um, yeah, and, and quite, uh, I, I suppose just thinking what's the worst going to happen and then making it even worse than that. I guess, but as a writer, you, can't, you you generally you're putting obstacles and conflict and stuff into people. But you say to yourself, just what's the most messed up way I can make this difficult for my characters? Interesting. And what's the what's I'm thinking with the Imperium, you just go, what's the least efficient, humane way of doing this? Because it's probably the way the Imperium does it. Um, so yeah, I think uh, yeah. But like I say, but I like the idea of that that backdrop set against it are these characters that are kind of trying to be heroic and even themselves are not necessarily that heroic, but actually, you know, they're kind of, uh, despite the inevitable, inevitable kind of loss and the pointlessness of everything really in the 41st millennium, the very effort of trying itself makes it heroic. The, the, hmm. the, the raging against the dying of the light is what's cool about it. Right. So the darker you make it, the brighter the lights shine. Interesting. Uh, Will 40k ever go mainstream? Uh, depends what you, depends what you mean by mainstream, because and what we mean by 40k even, because you could say, oh, Marvel's gone mainstream. Yeah, well, it hasn't. There's not that many people buying comics more. They're watching movies, so a movie would be mainstream, but it doesn't necessarily mean any more people would be buying toy soldiers. So, I think that you know, it's like. W- there's actually a much larger awareness of 40k and Warhammer these days than there was even five, ten years ago, yeah. uh, and it's continuing to grow. And as our culture evolves and stuff like that, then you know Warhammer is a thing. But it's actually it's one of those that was surprisingly amongst a certain population was surprisingly well known anyway, even if people didn't do it. Uh, and I think as people as people come of age and and become creators and the video games and stuff, the influence of those things becomes more and more evident and, and its acceptability and notability becomes wider. So I think mainstream IPs, yeah, it's never going to be everybody's taste. I think hmm. um, it's, it's very hard sell, I think to do it properly, but I think it's, yeah, it's going to continue to get more and more known, I suppose, but just as a natural consequence of more and more people kind of indulging in these kinds of pastimes and, and geekery really. It's been a pleasure, Gav. I appreciate you coming on the Shrine of Chaos and Welcome. letting us uh, pick your brain. And uh, we appreciate all that you've done to entertain us. That's really what it's all about <laughs> because uh, we've been reading the stories for years and uh, certainly welcome back on the show at a future time. I'm, I'm, I would love to come back. And, Thank uh, you for not sacrificing me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so stay tuned, uh, viewers, next week for another Shrine of Chaos. It'll be 1 p.m. Eastern time. And uh, happy wargaming.